whatever you think you can do from a growth standpoint, like multiply that by 10 and that should be your goal. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Holra. In this episode, I have an enlightening chat with Jeremy Patoka, founder of Presales Leader, a company that is pioneering a completely new offering. Jeremy and his team provide pre-sales services on a subscription basis. Jeremy walks us through his journey from teaching Spanish to making the leap into tech and ERP software, where he discovered his passion for pre-sales. In 2021, Jeremy made the leap, landing his first customer and hiring his first employee within mere months of launching the business. He shares transparent insights on the ups and downs of a rapidly scaling company with a focus on talent development and customer success. His thoughtful approach to goal setting, hiring, training and more, Jeremy offers inspiration to aspiring founders considering taking the plunge with a new business model. Jeremy, man, thank you so much for joining us on In the Thick of It. How we connected is kind of funny. My team had met you at an event early in the year and they're like, man, Scott, you got to you got to meet this guy and just never, never reached out, never happened. And then you and I were at a conference in Vancouver this spring and sit next to each other totally by chance. And I look at your name tag and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the guy I'm supposed to connect with. So <laughs> anyway, love getting to meet you in Vancouver and appreciate you being a guest today. Man, real quick, let's start with just kind of how you grew up. Did you grow up in a working class family? Were your parents entrepreneurs? What was school like? Give us a little insight. Yeah, so... Mom was a nurse, dad was in the Air Force, and then, you know, basically worked for the same company for a while. So um, I grew up with three brothers too. So a lot of, a lot of boys in the house. A lot of testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. So for the most part, my family was more along the lines of uh, kind of pick a career path that is predictable, which is why I was first a teacher. I was a teacher for the first five years of my working life after college, which was really cool. I have another brother that's a state trooper, right? So it was definitely not raised by entrepreneurs. It was it was kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah. I'm eager to hear more in a little bit about how this came to be. But man, what kinds of things were you into as a kid? Let's see. I skateboarded. <laughs> All right. You got any cool uh, scars? I don't have any school cool scars. I do have the uh I do still have the longboard though. Uh, I actually had that out with my boys this weekend. That was pretty fun. I wasn't big into sports. I wasn't a big sports guy. Played a lot of musical instruments, you know, piano, played for like 12 years, guitar, drums, trumpet. Yeah. Um, do you still play today? The piano I tinker around with. I have a little ukulele on the wall in uh our you know, living room at home that I'll pull down every once in a while, but not a whole lot now. Okay. So were you like super studious? I wouldn't say studious. I think uh, my parents were great about teaching us the value of hard work because that was always important to them. And they definitely handed that down to us. So when our other friends were into sports and like academics, I was an okay student in high school and, and middle school, but that was a, a paper boy delivering newspapers for the neighborhood when I was 12. So that, you know, it was like, man, get out there and earn some money and buy your first car with your own money. That was just how we were 
raised. So even when I turned 14 and was able to do something aside, deliver newspapers, that's when I got a job at uh, Chick-fil-A. And then I was 16, I got a job at a bank as a bank teller, which felt like I was uh, at the top of the pack in high school. Being a bank teller in high school is a pretty cool job. (laughs) So... So yeah, that was more of like, it was, you know, required academics and then it was kind of hustle on the side. Yeah. How early did you have to get up as a paper boy? 5.30. Okay. That's actually not as bad as I would have thought. Yeah. So when you went to Chick-fil-A, you actually got to start sleeping in. Oh, I did both. No, I still, I I kept the- Oh, you kept the paper route. So the deal back then with the um, the Philly suburb I I lived in was- for the, the newspaper, it was called the Courier Times. If you delivered newspapers from age 14 to 18, they actually gave you a four-year scholarship, not like a full pay or anything, but you got, I think it was a couple thousand dollars each year for four years. And you didn't have to deliver papers while you were in college, obviously, but it was just the fact that you kind of did that commitment from ninth to 12th grade. So yeah, I, I held on to it till senior year. That's amazing. And I got to believe that getting up early, it probably deters a lot of people. And I got to believe there's also a decent amount of churn. And what a way to keep people long term. That's incredible. Yeah, it was a good program. I heard that a couple of years after I graduated high school, they dissolved that program. But yeah, I definitely took advantage of it. Man, that's awesome. So you grew up in the suburbs of, of Philly. Are you diehard Eagles fan? My dad grew up on the Jersey Shore, and there's actually a lot of Cowboys fans on the Jersey Shore down into Maryland, right? Because that that team existed long before the Ravens or the, the Eagles did. So I grew up a closet Cowboys fan in the suburbs of Philly. So never, never wore my jersey to school or anything like that. I am a Phillies fan, not an Eagles fan. Okay. Do you still root for the Cowboys? I do. Okay. We... Well, we will tell, but anyway. (laughs) All right. So you mentioned college. Where did you go to school? What did you study? So I I went to uh, Messiah College. It's a Christian liberal arts school in central Pennsylvania. And then I went to a small college in Vermont for grad school called Middlebury College in Vermont. Studied Spanish. So I actually lived abroad in South America. I spent half a year in Quito, Ecuador. And then, you know, the goal was I was learning to become a teacher, Spanish teacher. So, yeah, that's what I studied in school. That's what I did in grad school as well. Taught a little bit at the college level. And I really liked doing that work. But uh, after about five years, I just had this itch to go do something that was tapping into my entrepreneurial skills, something more business oriented. So You mentioned you, you studied abroad in Ecuador. If memory serves, Ecuador is right on the equator and that's where it gets its name from. So is it like 12 hours of sun and 12 hours of, of dark like clockwork or how does that work? It doesn't change. It really doesn't change. Like we have daylight savings and we do all sorts of crazy things here to jack up the schedule and the sun. It's pretty much the same all year round because it doesn't move. <laughs> yeah, man. What was your undergrad experience like? Were, were Did you work uh, when you were in college? Were you involved in things on campus? So I, I figured out how to get a four-year degree into three years. I did a lot of classes in the summer as well. So I was really only on campus for two and a half years. And if you even consider half, because half of it, half a year in Ecuador, 
another half a year student teaching, not really taking classes. I basically had four semesters on campus. So yeah, I mean, it was busy. I worked for one of those. The Another one, I started dating my wife. That kept me busy for a while. That was the general experience. It was, it was so funny how when you're in college, I just felt this way. I was like, I can't wait to get out. Right? I can't wait to like kind of be working in a field that I want to be in and not taking classes anymore. And now, 15 years later, it's like, that would be so awesome to go back to college. <laughs> I'm the exact opposite. I wanted college to last as long as it possibly could. Yeah. And when I go back and visit campus, it makes me want to go back and relive it all over again. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Do you get back to your, uh, your alma mater very often? Yeah, we've moved around a lot out of Pennsylvania. Three years ago, we came back to Pennsylvania. We live about an hour west of Philly now, not northeast where I grew up. And we're only like 45 minutes from campus. So every once in a while, we just happen to be driving past. We'll, we'll drive through and check things out. So a little bit. We've taken our kids down to College Station a number of times and we'll walk around campus and like actually walk into the dorm and say, hey, this was my dorm when I was in school. And it's a trip for me. And for them, they're like, wow, I can't believe my dad was, you know, 18 at one point and <laughs> living in that room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So you, you get your bachelor's in record time. You go on to get your master's and you're teaching. You, I assume that you were teaching Spanish. What level Spanish? Was it kind of intro level or were you teaching more advanced? The way that it works in education is that even if you're like, you could be the highest degreed person, but because you're the newest, you're going to get the introductory classes like the, you know, the gen eds, pretty much what everybody has to take. So I taught in a high school for one year. And then I moved to a different school district that I really wanted to be in. And I was there for four and so primarily what I taught was actually eighth grade. It was middle, junior high, middle level, eighth grade, Spanish one. And five classes, 30 students, you know, 180 kids coming through the door every day. And it was the same thing five times a day. It's funny how the way that I've even approached like the pre-sales job, right? And doing software demos, so much of that foundation, it's amazing how much correlates to standing in front, trying to be energized to talk to eighth graders five about the same thing five times a day, right? <laughs> we actually, in our onboarding and training, we bring a lot of those concepts into the, into the mix because they're the same. And I may be mistaken, but don't you hire a lot of former teachers? We do, yeah, because that was the track that I had gone. And I think it's not a, you know, you could look at that and be like, well, why would someone in technology and sales hire a teacher. And I think a teacher with the right soft skills or characteristics is a great fit. So yeah, we've got a couple teachers, we've got a couple youth pastors, a pastor, like folks like that, that are, have the communication skills, can put together presentation, are public speakers, comfortable public speaking. And with somebody like that, they can learn software, they can learn a sales process and be very successful. We actually had a conversation recently about hiring and the topic of hiring teachers came up and I agree with everything that you just said there. But I also think that something that makes a, a teacher a great team member in an environment like yours or, or mine is 
you have to constantly adapt as a teacher. The classroom is always changing. You know, you may have one kid that's acting out and you got to deal with that while the rest of the class is, is going. And business is so dynamic and the ability to flex and move and flow is is really critical. And, and I totally get how that translates to, to what you were talking about. Yeah. It's almost like you're used to having multiple managers, right? You've got like a department curriculum supervisor, you have a principal, you have every kid's parent, <laughs> you know, with, with their own preferences and things that they want to share with you and things you need to communicate with them. So I would go as far to say anyone who's really successful at teaching would be great in so many roles. Yeah, totally agree. As an aside, I remember a little bit of Spanish from school and, and actually recently at the grocery store, it helped me uh, find something. But I still remember my very first Spanish homework assignment from seventh grade. That was, I can't even do the math. That was a long, long time ago. So <laughs> our teacher on the first day said, you need to memorize this. Masabe el burro que tu, which means a donkey knows more than you. <laughs> and, you know, here I am, I don't know, 30 years later. And, and I still remember that. So yeah. there we go. It's funny what sticks with you. It is. It is funny. Um, yeah, I actually, we have two job positions open right now. And I had a call with a student, you know, it's been like 10 years now, who I had in eighth grade. He went on to study in college. I, I don't know what he majored in, but he minored in Spanish, actually lived in a semester in Valencia, Spain, came back and started working for Amazon. And he's looking for a job. It was super cool to like get back and connected with uh, a student like that, but also we jumped on the, the team's meeting and, and he's like, do I call you senor? Is it Jeremy? Like, what do I do here? <laughs> That's awesome. That is really cool. My wife uh, used to teach third grade and she has connected with some of her former students on Facebook and Instagram and they're like now out of college and, and getting married. And so just like my kids can't imagine us being young, it's hard for her to imagine these kids, these third graders as, as married adults now and, and having their own kids. So full circle with your student. That's really cool. So you, you did hire him? No, I don't know. He's in our candidate pool right now. But yeah, really, really cool kid. And usually when you're in the hiring process, you don't think like, I wonder what you were like in eighth grade, because I actually know on this one what he was like right back then. Yep. Is that one of your interview questions? What were you like in eighth grade? Yeah. Were you a good student in eighth grade? Yep. <laughs> nice. So you teach for a few years, a couple different schools, different levels, and you went straight from teaching to doing what you're doing now. How did that come about? So the way it all started was I always had an interest in technology. And in my school district back in 2012, 2013, K through 12 schools were like really far behind in e-learning and being able to do, uh, even think of like 2019. I mean, pretty much public school systems in this country before 2020 didn't have online ed figured out. So we were, as a school district, just starting that initiative. And I think just some of the things I was doing with technology in the classroom led the administrators to think maybe I was a good fit to start building out what a hybrid model could look like, where students still come to school, they're in half classes, but then they also then are in like a 
collaborative environment, basically doing their own work at their own pace for the other half of their classes. So I was also excited to not do the same thing five times a day. So I probably would have said yes to anything. (laughs) So my final year teaching, I was teaching maybe two or three classes. And then my other time was spent kind of launching these virtual programs and online programs. So that was a little bit of a key into technology. And I thought it was really cool that I could travel to a tech conference rather than teaching for a couple of days. And it was like the first time I ever traveled for work. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like I'm in, an, I forget where I even was. It's probably somewhere not even cool, but I was like, the rest of my teacher pals are, you know, back in Pennsylvania in their classroom. I'm, I'm in DC having lunch with adults. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it started. That's how the transition at least started out of a formal teaching role. Yeah. Are you a technology person? Are you an early adopter of things? Or was this more of like something new and you wanted to do something different? I think back then I was probably more of an adopter of things than I am now. I took like a computer science class in college and just was writing some basic HTML and thought it was cool. Did like some basic website development in college. Thought that was cool. (laughs) And I always remember when I got my first laptop, that was a pretty cool day. First iPhone, you know, and before the iPhone, I had had a BlackBerry. You remember the BlackBerry days? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I love touching all that, all that stuff. And so it was just something fun and cool to tinker around with almost. So... From there, you get the bug, the technology thing is incorporated your school, your job as a teacher. And then what happened next? Yeah, I had an opportunity through a friend of the family to be able to basically break into ERP. So uh, someone I knew just through my personal network was a longtime Solomon Dynamics SL reseller. And he had just picked up Acumatica in 2013, 2014. And needed some help building a product that would complement another solution he was making. So they're still in business today. It's called Nonprofit Plus. It's a nonprofit package for Acumatica built by a company called ASI in Connecticut. And the operating thought in the early days was a blocker to a nonprofit organization implementing a new ERP is training and budget. So if we can create a really in-depth training course, not like just an open university experience, like what you might see from big tech, where it's like an open course, right? Something really tailored to almost to be able to allow that company to self-implement if they wanted to. So it was a product I built called AccuCademy. Again, still around today, still exists. And so that, that's how the education piece, that, that was the, what bridged the gap, right? I had no formal accounting experience. I had never sold a thing in my life, but I knew how to launch an e-learning program. So that was the first project I worked on. It took me about a year, but everything from developing the LMS within that platform to creating all the content, taking what a lot of times publishers make an hour webinar, breaking it into like, five-minute videos with questions and activities, right? Something real tangible for people to be able to take and, and consume on a lunch break, not just sit there, be bored, and forget everything. 
for people who may not know, there are two acronyms in there. Can you talk about ERP and LMS for just a second? Yeah, sure. ERP is Enterprise Resource Planning, basically a fancy acronym somebody created at some point to stand for business software, right? Accounting software, inventory, manufacturing. And then LMS is a learning management system. So there's all sorts of LMSs, but pretty much every high school and college offers some sort of learning management platform that they put all their content on to be able to take and provide courses to their students. So with this job, you talked about you were actually helping build the product. Was that from the content creation side or was that from the coding out the interface and building the back end of the tool or both? We built it on a low-code platform, so it was like 90% baked. There was very little programming involved in actually getting the course to look the way we wanted it to. I, it was like some basic HTML you know, formatting and stuff. The hardest part for me was learning, at learning an, e, an ERP system and needing to understand what a general ledger was and you know, accounts payable, accounts receivable, to be able to create the course content around it. It was both of those things. Is it safe to assume that you never took financial or managerial accounting in your uh, Spanish major? Yeah, I took Spanish for business, but that was pretty much the extent of it. I started as a, an international business major. That's what I actually started as a freshman. And I think I just had a really bad course load my first semester of um, like an HR class and financial accounting. And like three weeks in, I was just like, this is not for me. All this stuff is super boring. So I actually have since gone back. I'd probably been working within the accounting software industry for three or four years when I thought, all right, it's time for me to actually understand double entry accounting and and all the nuances around that. So I went back to a community college and took financial accounting and cost accounting courses just to get up to speed. (laughs) Yeah. When you were working and building this LMS, was that like a summer that was you used your your time off in the summer to do that? Or did you actually go all the way in and and left teaching and and you were doing that full-time permanent? The interesting thing about the teaching profession, at least in public schools in Pennsylvania, is that you're a tenured teacher at your fifth year. So I just crossed the threshold to be vested and tenured in the state program. So it was an awesome safety net for me to be able to tell them I'm going to step away for a year. They had to hold my contract for a year so I could come back if I wanted to. About three months in, I knew I wasn't going to go back, but I uh, still waited a year, had a conversation that technically they had to hold it for two years. But, you know, after a year, I I just was having too much fun doing this other stuff. So it didn't take you long. You drank the Kool-Aid and you were all in. Where did you go from there? So I was with that company for about four years and we built some really cool products and had some really good success. Very small software company. You wind up, so it's an amazing opportunity for learning. Anyone that's trying to ever break into a new career My advice to them is always like, go find a company where you're going to learn a lot. You don't need to stay there forever, but find somewhere where you can learn what you like and what you don't like. So, you know, I did everything from after that first year of building, once I learned Acumatica, the the software that we had built the nonprofit modules around, you know, I was able to be a project manager 
I was able to be an implementer. I learned loading data and data migration. I learned a little bit of SQL. And then we started doing demos and I was doing demos and I, and I was starting to sell a couple deals a quarter, let's say. So that's like a dozen different career paths, <laughs> right? And I, after four years, decided I really want to focus on one of those. This has been awesome, but I really want to focus on one of those. So I went to work for one of the larger resellers of Acumatica in the country called SWK Technologies. And they were a couple of years into their Acumatica practice and were looking for someone to just focus on pre-sales, which is a perfect fit for what I wanted to do. So that's what I did for the basically four years after that. Okay. So five years teaching, I think four years at one place and then four years at SWK. About how old are you at this point? Oh, man, I was 33. Okay. And you're married and have kids? Yep. We had, I'll never forget when I started pre-sales leader because it was the same month that we had our second child. So July, 2021. All right. You've got four years at a premier partner organization. I'm going to make the assumption fairly stable. You got a paycheck you can count on. At some point you decided, hey, I want to go do this other thing. And I want to dig deeper into that in a minute. But one of the things I'm always fascinated to hear is for people who were married and especially if they had kids when they made the jump, what was that conversation like with your wife? Hey, I'm going to go make this jump and paycheck is not guaranteed. And oh, we've got a, a baby on the way. What was the the mood like in the house? What did what did your <laughs> wife have to say about that? My wife told me when we first got married, or even maybe like after I proposed to her, she said, I have three basic requirements, just that I'm, I know myself as a spouse that I'm not a fit for. One is somebody who's in the military, who's going to be away for like six to nine months at a time. She's like, I just don't know that I can do that. Number two is someone who's in full-time ministry, just because that often takes you out of the house nights and weekends a lot. And number three was the owner of a small business, because she had seen that from other family members lived, and it's tough, it's challenging in lots of ways. So that, that was kind of how I broke it to her, was I said, I'm, I've got to break this, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to break one of these three. So, but I have, I have a really good plan. <laughs> so... That was the conversation. I Here's not just what I want to do. Here's why I want to do it. And she already had a sense that I was headed that direction anyway. But yeah, we still laugh about that today. Was there a series of conversations that led up to the, hey, I'm doing it? Or was it just straight to, here's the plan, I'm, I'm going? I think at that point, she was so ready to just have a baby. You know, you hit that seven month mark and it's like, I just want this baby out of me. <laughs> <laughs> that I think she was just kind of like along. Yeah, it was like, yeah, this sounds good. It sounds like you thought about this. I trust you. There wasn't a ton of pushback or or concern, but I think it was because she was mentally occupied on. Everything was fuzzy for her. And uh, right. you can tell me offline if, if you planned it that way or, or <laughs> it just happened that way. But so real quick, no military, no full-time ministry, and no small business. Well, we know you did the third. Yeah. With your dad having been in the Air Force, was the military ever a consideration for you? I was always fascinated by the military, but 
I think almost because my dad went that route, he made sure that none of us went that route. <laughs> because he didn't go into the academy, any ROTC program in college. Like he literally enlisted and was in, in Vietnam. During that, he was based in Las Vegas at an Air Force base there, but he it was during the time period of Vietnam. So it wasn't like something that he wanted all of his sons to go do. <laughs> okay. Yep. And having grown up presumably in the faith and, and going to a Christian school was full-time ministry ever on the radar? Or I'm just trying to figure out, did your wife have like some basis for these things? Or was it just like, I know myself well enough to know that these are, are not a fit? Yeah, that one's never been something that I felt called to full-time. I think that was more growing up in and around a church. And we went to a Christian college as well. So I think that you look at people that did go that route. And I think she's very self-aware. I think that was just her own self-awareness to say, I've thought about what my life could look like as someone who's married to somebody in the military, for example, or someone that's married to a pastor. And I don't know if I want that for me. So We had another guest recently who his wife said, I don't want to be married to a business. And sounds like a lot of similarities there. Yep. All right. You have your second child, and in that same month, you start the business. What were those early, early days like? I think my, even leading up to when I made the cutover from a full-time employee to running my own show, uh, which was basically two years ago in August, it was just trying to get my first three customers. That's like all I was hyper-focused on, was how can I get enough recurring revenue to basically float what I was used to making as a W-2. Our business is a services business, but we do very little time and material work. Almost all of our revenue is subscriptions, right? Subscription as a service. So I was just laser focused on that. Our website today is still almost embarrassing because I've grown this word of mouth. And Literally, the website that my wife helped me put up two years ago is is what we still have today. So we didn't put a lot of focus on marketing or anything like that. It was, you know, I've been in this business for eight years now. I have some great relationships. I feel like I can help some of my colleagues, friends, software companies excel. How do I at least start with my first three so I know I've got a six-month runway? That was really the first month was just locking that down. I want to get more into what the company does in in just a second, but I am fascinated by the way that people and companies have found ways to turn things into a subscription. We've had Netflix for a long time and we've had Spotify and Apple Music for a long time, but you've got razors that you can, razor blades you can get on subscription now. And car companies have experimented with subscription programs for a vehicle. You are doing something that, to the best of my knowledge, nobody else is. And if there are other people, I heard it from you first, and I'm blown away that this could be a subscription. And and for people who might be listening, if you're thinking about a subscription business, let this be an encouragement to you that you really truly can turn anything into a subscription. So with that, tell us what it is people subscribe to pre-sales leader for. What I had done for the four years prior, and then like I mentioned, wearing lots of hats, but 
doing some of this before that after teaching is uh, what we call pre-sales. So within complex software sales, meaning not something that you can just go on someone's website and pay $49 a month for, right? There's no complexity in business process or technology that will require you to have a meeting with that company. Our bread and butter is folks that have applications that have a big project associated to it. So you're going to pay somewhere between like twenty dollars and $50,000 for a software solution. And then there might even be an implementation that's two times that. That's the type of sales where pre-sales is generally more prevalent. So we're not salespeople. We're kind of quasi-salespeople. We're not consultants or architects, but we're alone. But we are basically those three things put together. And that's what pre-sales is. So we take the requirements and have initial meetings with an end prospect who's looking at a software solution. We put together a presentation of the solution and the software for them. And then we help the salesperson resolve any concerns, objections, put a proposal together with a lot of details. So that's just a general, I just want to make sure I define what pre-sales is because I know not all the listeners would know exactly what pre-sales is or, or does. Solution engineering, pre-sales, solutions architecture, they have slightly different purposes, but that's all falls under the umbrella of pre-sales. So I had this idea of almost every company in the a mid-market ERP channel that I had worked in struggled with pre-sales. A lot of times the companies, there's so many software companies out there. But when people think of tech, they think of like Google, Salesforce, Oracle, they think of big, big tech. Those companies have benches of pre-sales people, right? They have people with all different levels of experience, but there are so many software companies out there that built an app because they had a great idea, but they really struggle to demonstrate it. If you've ever been part of a evaluation process of a software and you walked away and said, that demo was terrible. Like, I'm sure the software is good, but it was actually a really bad presentation. I was so distracted by fill in the blank, right? That's what we do. We help those software companies present their software in a way that's going to be really cohesive, that's going to allow them to achieve more sales. So that's basically what we did. That's what I've done. And then what we did when I started the business was I took that to market as a subscription service. That's how it started. And you talked a minute ago about, you know, your goal was get get your first three customers as quickly as you can. Who is your customer? It's either a software reseller of an ERP system, or it's the software publisher themselves. So it's someone who's reselling software in a channel like Sage or Acumatica or NetSuite, or it's actually those smaller software companies that kind of live in those ecosystems that usually the target is somebody that's under 40 or 50 million in revenue. But we have everything down to like, startups that are pre-revenue <laughs> that aren't ready to bring on a new, they're not going to go get a pre-sales person on staff because they don't need somebody full time. So they, they bring us on as a service. You mentioned something a minute ago, and I may have misheard it, but I, I think you said something to the effect of it's really hard to hire for pre-sales. Why do you think that is? I think number one, a lot of people don't understand what pre-sales is. So I think it's there's no career path in college to go take for pre-sales like there is for accounting or software development. 
every single person that is in pre-sales did something else before. You are a consultant and you liked the sales side. You are a salesperson and you actually like to dig into the technology deeper than just kind of running a sales process and doing deals. So everyone's path into this, it's amazing to talk to people that have been in pre-sales for five or 10 years because teacher, programmer, I mean, I've heard of like all sorts of crazy prior prior careers before getting into pre-sales. So I think that part makes it hard to start. And then I think on top of that, unless you come out of like a really big tech experience that had a formal education and training program around how to do pre-sales well, people that do stumble into it aren't always given the tools to be successful. And that's why like part of what I see my job is, is creating new pre-sales people. That's like we hire probably 50% people that have done this before and 50% people that are brand new. And that's because it's the talent pool just is that shallow. The whole genesis of why we exist and why our customers use us is because they struggle to either retain pre-sales people or find them in the first place. And that's kind of the obstacle that we take away. Man, as I, I was thinking about kind of the pool of, of talent that's available for this, if we think of this in concentric circles, that outer ring of, you know, the entire ecosystem of people that know this one application really well, such that they can demonstrate the value and walk people through it and translate the, you know, the requirements to the system. We start with that that outer circle, and it's not that big of a circle. I mean, there's probably several dozen players, maybe 100, maybe 150 players that do this. And then from there, within their teams, you've got accounting staff and you've got HR and you've got all this. And, and then you've got go down a layer and you've got your salespeople and you've got your technical people. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the bullseye is pretty small. How have you found talent? Or maybe I guess the question is, how have you developed the talent? So for me, I'd say 75% of the people that work at the company today were people I knew or knew of or had worked with in some capacity in the past, even like from a partnership standpoint or they were a customer at one point, you know, something along those lines. How we develop people, I think it's the teacher in me that actually has always wanted to build out a pretty rigorous onboarding structure for folks and training experience. I still don't give it the amount of time that I would love to today, just because we're all time constrained. But I think that we probably do that piece better than most, even though I'm not 100% satisfied even where we're at. You know, we really have a very formal structure to bring people on, teach them the application, teach them the role, they get mentored, they, you know, submit recordings that are reviewed and get really detailed feedback, you know, on based on a rubric that we've built. And then the other part is most of our staff is in our office here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or and we have a small office in Portland, Maine. So our junior people are usually seeing it in person every day, which I think if you look at the industry as a whole and pre-sales and technology working remote and that flexibility is awesome. But for someone that's trying to make a change in their career to a new, like totally new field, totally new role, being able to open the office door right here and then knock on my, you know, ask me a question or when we're walking for coffee across the street, tell me about what they're struggling with on a deal. 
as a differentiator for us. The world seems pretty divided on the whole in-office versus remote front. And it sounds like you guys have really focused on hiring people that are going to be in office. Do you have a handful of remote folks or? We do. The majority of them are people I've worked with in the past or know of and or have experience. That's, I think, the biggest piece is if it's not necessarily trust, like you're not working, it's more you're autonomous and those roles are also field. Those people travel sometimes. They're, I'd almost prefer them to be on the road in front of customers or at home in front of customers than hanging out with us here in an office. So, But the more that we evolve and the more that we grow as a leadership team, we talk about it. It's almost like we're at this point, we're almost to the point of if you can't be out of one of our physical locations and you're a junior employee, we can't hire you. It's just we're not going to be able to pour what we want into you over Google Meet. Yeah, there's so much that gets learned just by osmosis of of being around being around your your colleagues. So I wholeheartedly uh, understand and appreciate that. Going back to kind of getting the business off the ground, was it just you right out of the gate, or did you have other people that joined you? Did you have a, a co-founder? It was just me in August. I. Brought on my first hire in September here in Lancaster. This was the year that you started or? Yeah, basically 45 days in, I brought in a, a second employee, yeah, my first employee. Wow. So you must have found those first three customers really quick. I did. I had a good pipeline of three more. So that was my concern of this is awesome, but how do I expand and scale? Which was always the goal, not just to be a kind of a rogue 1099 for a couple of companies, right? It was, I actually want to build a business around this. Yeah. So you land those first three customers really fast, which for brand new businesses, that's pretty rare. And that must speak to the relationships that you've, you've built over the years. Not many businesses hire that first employee that quickly, unless they've got some capital behind them. But from what I know, man, you've just been on a hiring spree and you've grown a ton. How many people do you have on your team today? If I take, we have two open positions right now. We'll probably be around 18 employees by the end of the quarter. So by the end of September, it will be somewhere around 18. So two years in going from one to 18. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. And- it's def- definitely added a lot of uh, administrative back end to the business that you also have to solve for. So we've recently started hiring some of those types of roles like administrative assistants and just folks to help out with payroll and all those things that before were super easy. <laughs> you could run the business on a spreadsheet. That's right. That's right. For a lot of founders, there's kind of a progression where when you start, you're doing it all. Are you at a point now where your job looks dramatically different than it did two years ago or even 12 months ago? For me, it's actually gone through different waves because we'll get to a point where I feel like we're fully staffed and I'll get out of some of the pre-sales work myself and solution architecture work. And then we get busy (laughs) and you can't ask people to work 60 hours a week. So you just take on more yourself and then you hire again and then you get back to a better balance. So I've probably gone through that three times. You know, we're in another one of those seasons right now where 
half my week kind of looks the same as it did in August of 2021. The other half looks totally different. Mondays, all I do is internal meetings and pre-sales leader work. I don't do any client calls just because I, I always like to start the week off making sure my team has everything they need to be successful that week. And if they need any help, obstacles being cleared or need to buy something or whatever, you know, they need one to bring to the table on those calls. So it's starting to change. But yeah, for me, it hasn't been a slow transition. I thought it'd be a, a line of 90, 10, 80, 20, 70, 30. And it's been a little bit of a yo-yo for me. I want to talk about that a little bit more. You, you said that you thought it was going to be this way. You, you had some expectation. Are there some things that you have tried that have not worked out the way that you hoped they would? Yeah, de <laughs> definitely. So it's just trial and error, especially for us. I don't know of any business that I can look at and mirror what we're doing after them. We're kind of a new category of business. Like We're not a software company. We're not a software reseller. We're also not a recruiting firm or a staffing agency. So I don't have somebody that I can look at and say, hey, this was their path and mine could look similar with my own flavors. So it's a lot of just trying to make informed decisions with my leadership team and committing to follow through on whatever we decided <laughs> and also committing to pull the ripcord and do something different if it's not working. That's been the evolution for us. And a lot of times I joke with people, you know, you take a bunch of solution architects and ask them to, to start a company and, and build a company. And, and we're big on process. Like that's what we do. So everything we do has process, documentation. We use monday.com. We built our whole operating system in there for all the things outside of accounting. And that's just in our nature as, as our role. So we've done that for ourselves. But yeah, sometimes you get down a path and say, yeah, this just isn't working and we either need to throw it out or we need to vastly change the way we're doing it. Is there a specific example of something you've had to pull the ripcord on? So we started this, our business is, is divided into three business units, pre-sales, product marketing, and post-sales solution design. And early on, I, you know, I had great leadership in pre-sales. And as the solution design was getting more traction, I hired a, a leader. He's now a, a co-founder for that business unit. You know, it was like, all right, we're good here. We're good there. And trying to figure out what to do with product marketing has been a big question mark for us. It's a really important service for majority of our clients. And it's also a way that we help train new SEs. It's like they're not doing live demos. They're building click-through demos. They're building videos that, you know, my team can kind of review and approve. And if they go through three or four iterations, it's also a learning experience for them so that one day they can do pre-sales. So, but when I interpret the business from a financial statement, I look at that and say, we need to grow that a lot more before we can bring on a leader for that business unit. So that, yeah, those were some of the things that we've just had to figure out. I mean, what we try to do all the time is just make sure we're doing quality work for our customers. We don't have any like super secret sales strategy of growing our business. It's just if we evaluate ourselves based on our customers' growth and they pay us a certain amount of money and they grew 10 times what they sold the year before 
everybody's happy. They, they stay a customer or their best friend, right? <laughs> so we want to do quality work. So, you know, that's been the question is, do we still even have that practice? If so, who's going to manage it? Should we bring someone on and actually run a loss on a business unit, which is weird for me, at least. <laughs> I don't. That's like a new concept. Again, we're not a software company that ran losses for two years and then became profitable in year three. We're a services company. If there's no VC funding. We have to turn a profit. It's just how we, we've always had to operate. So yeah, that's been one recently that... And we, we actually did decide we hired somebody full-time to run that practice six weeks ago. So it's, we're still wading through that, but that's one example. What you talked about resonates with me big time. And my big takeaway or, or my experience is that when you get into something new, if you're going to do it, you really have to jump in with both feet and do it. And you can't kind of dabble with it until it gets traction. You have to be dedicated to it in order to get to that point of traction. Yeah, that's kind of where we arrived to. It was like, if we're going to do this, we need to do this well, or we shouldn't do it at all. I wholeheartedly agree. Your growth has been pretty incredible. Again, going from you to 18 people in two years and to the point you just made without outside funding. Are you surprised at the speed of your growth or did you kind of expect this all along? I think it was a big question mark for me in the first three months. By month four, you know, I brought on in the second month, I brought on employee number one, so a second person outside of me. By month four, I brought on employee number three. And so I was surprised like very early on. I was like, wow, this is building a lot faster than than I had. I actually learned that I set my goals too low because when I kicked off when I started the business, I, I had set some goals on like a five-year horizon. And like, I think we, are, we already are th- crushed through those like <laughs> in year two. So I set the bar way too low, which is something that we learned. We go like, whatever we think, we just go higher now in our goal setting. But I think for me, you know, we talked about the subscription model earlier. That has been the fuel for our growth. It's easy for me to make decisions when I can look out six to 12 months and have subscription agreements with customers that know and like and trust us and I can count on are going to pay their bills, right? To make decisions on, even when you're bootstrapping like we are. So yeah, I mean, that's from that like three to six month point on, we adjusted our goals and, you know, we've just kind of been executing and adapting since then. You said a minute ago that you have just blown through your goals. Are there things or other things that you've been surprised by along the way, either surprised in a good way or, or surprised in a not so good way? Two things that I guess one was more surprising. The other is more uh, something I heard of a really long time ago, which was the superintendent of the school that I worked at in the Philly area, which was like one of the top schools in Pennsylvania. It's really, I get all sorts of accolades nationally and, and in the state. And it's a large school district, right? I mean, we're talking like their annual budget is $200 million. So it's a big, big organization, even though it's a public institution. And the superintendent of that school district, when I was onboarded as a teacher, said that being the superintendent is like the best thing in the world 
because he he gets to participate in the coolest things that the school is involved in and he hears about the best things like students going to Harvard and you know he's a part of all of that and then he's also like the janitor that cleans up messes after everyone leaves and I totally get that now <laughs> like the life of a small business owner and an entrepreneur you have the highest highs and you know for me getting an email from a new client saying that they loved the demo that one of my new SEs did and can't wait to do more opportunities with us. You know, you get the highest of highs. And then you also have to deal with just the all the other stuff. I mean, <laughs> which is a lot. Sometimes a client is upset. Sometimes clients struggle to pay their bills. You know, at a company our size, I don't have an accounting team to deal with things like that. Um, It's literally me taking a call sometimes after hours to understand what's going on. So I would say that's the biggest thing that I never understood before. Now I actually, I see it every day. (laughs) I think that most people who start a business know in the back of their mind that not every day is going to be rosy, that there are going to be bumps along the way. And I'm sure you went in with that same mindset. Have you had more of that than you anticipated? I would say it's been equally balanced. I don't think it's too set one way than another. I think I've had to learn to not strive for perfection just because people are imperfect, you know, including myself. And when you get a bunch of people together to try to do anything, you're going to have gaps. And there's definitely something to be said for just being able to recover quickly and recover well. But no, overall, I think anytime we get to that point, we just slow down a little bit. And I had great advice from actually a neighbor of mine who's on like his seventh startup or something. You know, he's had six successful exits and a really cool guy. And he told me in, in month one, he said, Jeremy, I, I can see it in your eyes. Like, you're, you're ready to go. You're just ready to go. He's like, the biggest advice I can tell you, slow down a little bit. <laughs> and we've had great growth, right? Like, we've had great growth. We've built the team to a really good size in two years. And there are certain times that, like, the demand for what we do is big. To a certain extent, sometimes I think we could be excelling faster, but I'm trying to take his advice, number one, but number two, also just like, let's make sure that we have an administrative backbone. (laughs) You know, I can't add 20 new clients tomorrow and that's okay. We're going to do it slow. We're going to do it methodical. So our, the back of my t-shirt says demos that don't suck, right? If we start doing demos that suck, that would be a really big problem, like monumental problem. (laughs) So... What are the parts of your job? You talked a minute ago about, you know, today about half your week looks like it used to and about half your week is different. What are the parts of the job that you enjoy most and least? I would say most, and this has surprised me a little bit, is I've loved just building the team. I've managed teams at other companies, but never one this size and never one that I owned, right, from a company perspective. So that part has been super validating, super fun. We bring our team together twice a year in person. So we did like a holiday party last year, and then we did um, a company onsite in May. And just getting everybody together and having some fun, playing golf, 
going out to eat, working on stuff here in the office together. Like those are some of the best days, you know, and it has nothing to do with revenue growth or clients. It's just literally building this team and hanging out with one another. It's culture. Yep. Culture. Yep. Those are some of the best times. And even um, seeing some of the junior folks we bring on that don't know even what pre-sales was two weeks ago and watching them win their first deal, that's pretty exciting too for everyone when, when those happen. The other side of it, the administrative complexities of running a fast scaling company, especially one that because of what we do in our client work within accounting software and solution design, it's almost like I can't let us do something poorly administratively. (laughs) So good example, I was talking to a friend's company, they just were acquired recently, and they weren't on a cruel basis accounting, they were a cash basis company. And like, which is really common. But for me, like day one, we've been a cruel. And there's an administrative overhead to do that. And for listeners that don't know what that is, it's just how you look at your financial statements, right? If you're a certain size company, you have to be accrual basis. And to make that change at some point is really hard. And I thought, well, if we're going to scale to be that revenue number eventually, let's just start there now. So I've almost put more work on us in some ways. And like, that's the stuff that it's always the last thing to do on my list. And it's also hard to train to, to get somebody else to do. So it's just like all those, and, and those are, it's like five minute tasks, but it's a hundred of them. And that's the stuff that is the later nights. I'm not up on late nights doing demos or things like that. It's that other stuff. So, and it's not fun. <laughs> it's just kind of like rote administrative work. So those are the times where I'm like, oh man, I got to figure out how to transition this to somebody else. But that also is going to take more time too that I don't have. So if you could talk to the Jeremy of, Two years ago today, having been through what you've been through, what advice would you go back and give to yourself? I would say trust the people you hire quicker, number one. I would say shoot your goals higher. You know, I think being okay shooting for more. I'd rather miss the mark by 50% than exceed it by 200% because that means we were operating under our true capability. And, you know, there's all sorts of business books and stuff that say that. But until you actually put a goal together that you think is really high and then achieve it too fast, it just feels a little lackluster. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be a, a definite. Another one would just be really go set your, if whatever you think you can do from a growth standpoint, like multiply that by 10 and, and that, that should be your goal. Hire an admin six months in rather than a year and six months in. Those would be my top three. Those are great suggestions. Well, man, what do you attribute your success to? So we have a quote on our wall. It's actually by uh, Kathy Truitt, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And we still are working on a company mission statement and vision as a leadership team. It's hard to carve out time to do that. So we do it in many workshops and we're working on that stuff. But I would say... That, that quote from the, the founder of Chick-fil-A says, it's something I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, the more we focus on becoming better, our customers demand that we become bigger. And that has been from day one for me, something that we've had on the wall, even at like our first co-working space before we had our own offices. And anytime someone's visiting us at the office, they ask what it is, we explain to, it, to them why it's on the wall. 
And we're not a business that has hundreds of customers, right? It's subscriptions and people doing things to fulfill those subscriptions. So that's always been our mantra. Like if we can do this, if we can offer pre-sale services on a subscription basis that are more cost-effective than a full-time W-2 and allow our clients to grow their business, close more deals faster at higher dollar values, then we'll grow without trying to do it. We don't need a new website with SEO and AdWords. And like at some point, we might get mature enough to grow into some of that. But if we just take care of the customers we have and focus on doing better demos ourselves, the rest of it's going to take care of itself. And it worked for him. I mean, there's Chick-fil-A everywhere, right? So... (laughs) I probably had it twice last week. So (laughs) real quick, you talked about the website and we stated early on that you've really invented a whole new category of business. SEO or not, are there people out there searching for this? We've had a couple people come to our website that have looked at pre-sales as a service. I only know of one other company that I don't even know if they're in business anymore. It was like one guy in the UK that does pre-sales as a service for one application. So I don't know that people necessarily are going to Google and searching for pre-sales as a service, but TBD. I mean, like I said, our business has grown word of mouth and just through the little ERP ecosystems that we operate within and so I'm not sure. And that's where, you know, the question you asked me earlier about like, are you quick to adopt technology? And my answer was, I used to be. One of those reasons is because like the, the one thing I've learned in the last two years is that in a certain way, business hasn't changed in like hundreds of years. People do business with people that they know, like, and trust. And that's really what it's about for us too. It's all of our growth and the customers that continue to renew with us. It's just, it's relationships, providing them value. The more value we can provide them, the longer they want to stay with us. So especially in a world where so many marketing technologies and inbound methodology, and we've dabbled in some of that, and I have in in prior uh, companies too, but it just, for me, it comes back to relationships, people. Nothing tops relationships. Yeah, absolutely. What's one question you've been asking yourself lately? One question I've always noodled on, especially recently, when you're a self-funded business, I think there's always this question of, do we do a round of funding? Do we bring in a capital injection and throw kerosene on what we're already doing? People build businesses both ways. That's one that I don't have plans on looking for, but when you have other peers that start a business that way, do a round of funding for $20 million, spend a year building something cool. And I feel like to a certain extent, they have less stress on them because it's you know, not their own money. <laughs> so the more people I've asked though, they said not to do that because it comes with a different stress. So yeah, that's one that I've been asking myself. Like there's always the desire to do what you're doing better and faster. It's one that I've kicked around myself and thought, is that a route that we should go? Last question. What's next? What's next? We're doing more of what we have been doing. We're going to focus on the customers that we have. We may extend into uh, another business unit at some point when we feel like we've primed the four that we're doing right now, but all still largely within the core offerings of what we do. My quick answer would just be 
more of what we've been doing. And if we talk in another two years, I hope to be 40 employees. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being a guest on In the Thick of It. I look forward to checking in with you in a couple of years and seeing where you're at. Awesome. Well, thanks for the opportunity to get on the chat. It's always fun to talk to somebody that you guys are definitely ahead of us in your life cycle of uh, maturity as a business. So it's always good just to hear from you. And even uh, the questions you asked were very interesting. So appreciate that. That was Jeremy Patoka, founder and principal solutions architect of Presales Leader. To learn more, visit presalesleader.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. <laughs>